As we, uh, good morning, by the way, as we uh, pray before the, the, the message, just some things that we will be praying for. Uh, in particular, um, we want to be in prayer for uh, Kristen Kim uh, and her family as uh, her mother, uh, young A, uh, passed uh, away this morning. She, she died um, at the Long Island Jewish Hospital, uh, complications from surgery, so we want to remember to pray for uh, Kilwan and, and Kristen and the, the, uh, the Chang family. We also want to pray for uh, Kathy Lorenzo's father, Ruben. So as we go to prayer, um, calling upon a merciful and gracious God to be merciful and gracious in these situations, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are very thankful that in, in moments of, uh, of great pain, both emotional and physical, in seasons of sorrow and in grief, Lord, we can call upon you to be gracious, to be merciful. Uh, Lord God, as we remember the Anzardo family in, in their season of grief now, we pray for the continued comfort of your Holy Spirit, the presence, Lord God, that administers and serves the heart and the mind with the, the peace and the assurance that, uh, Father, you know the depth of pain that death causes, and you know as well, Father, and you have promised to us the victory that we have through Christ, who has overcome death, and now is uh, seated at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us, especially we, we know for those who are in grief. And as we pray for uh, the Chang family, for Kristen and for Kilwan and their children, Lord God, as they mourn the death of young, we ask that the same Holy Spirit, the same comfort, Lord God, with which you comforted others throughout the centuries with regard to your presence, the assurance, the hope, Lord God, the grief that is inspired and motivated by hope of a resurrection to come would be their support. We know, Lord, that in moments like this, that underneath all of these things are the everlasting arms of a God who is well acquainted with grief and familiar with sorrow and one who has indeed, by all that he has endured, overcome it, so that while death, O oh Lord God, is painful, your word assures us that all it can do is make us better because it brings us fully into your presence there where we await, Lord God, a reunion with a resurrected body. We also pray, Father, for Reuben and for Kathy and for her mom as they Watch, Lord God, and wait uh, for the outcome of his illness. We, we pray, Lord, that uh, if it be your will, that you would extend and prolong his life. And if not, O oh God, then he would pass into your presence. We ask for that same comfort of your Holy Spirit and of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with Kathy, her mom, and her family. That the assurance that we have of the resurrection into eternal life would, would be that which upholds and sustains them and these other families, Lord God, in grief. Father, we pray as well for those in our midst who <clears throat> have received jobs and have gone through seasons of unemployment. We thank you that you have provided work. We pray, Lord God, for uh, families who are struggling, not, uh, maybe not financially, but emotionally, Lord God. There is tension within the family. We ask that their peace would reign, that your grace would be merciful, that the presence of your spirit would bring about reconciliation and restoration, wholeness, Father. We pray for those uh, victims far away from us on the, on the island of Maui who have lost everything. 
and Lord God have now begun the very difficult and challenging process of rebuilding literally from nothing. And so we pray, Lord, for those families who have lost loved ones and for those, O oh Lord God, who must now rebuild. Uh, we ask that you would help them, Lord God, to do so. And uh, may this be an opportunity as well, Father, for those who have not yet put their trust in you to cry out to you for help and knowing that you will answer those prayers. We pray as well, Lord God, as we have now entered into an election season, that you would give our government leaders wisdom and discernment, and that you would also bring healing uh, to our nation. We are witnessing, perhaps, Lord God, many of us have not seen this in our lifetime, such a deep uh, and polarizing division without any hope of there being a reconciliation or repair. But we know, Lord God, that there is hope because you are a God who gives it, and you are the God of hope. And so we pray that as we are in this election season and on into the election of 2024, that there would be, Lord God, the, the churches that bear your name uh, taking the lead in being those who lead in reconciliation and rest restoration, that we would uh, not politicize the gospel, but see it as transcending politics, transcending uh, divisions of race and ethnicity. Father, that the peace of Christ is that which not only mends broken hearts, but mends and heals and repairs broken nations. And so we ask, Lord God, for your forgiveness as a nation for the divisions that have divided us. And may we, Lord God, in seeking reconciliation with you, be uh, messengers and um, agents of reconciliation as well. Father, we thank you for David. We thank you for his heroism. And when confronting Goliath, we thank you for the faith demonstrated when he stood before that giant. We also thank you, Lord God, for his brokenness and for his contrition, for having forgiven him for his great and uh, <clears throat> calamitous sin. Uh, we know, Lord God, that uh, like him, we are not perfect. And that when we stand before a holy God, when we stand before a holy God, and, and are awed by your holiness. When we stand, O oh Lord God, in the, the light of your glory, we recognize there is nothing in our hands, nothing in our heart, nothing in our mind that we can bring that can satisfy your justice or excuse our unholiness. All we can do, Father, is point to the cross and to bathe our soul and our heart in our mind, in the blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins, knowing as the old hymn says that those who plunge themselves beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We want our stains to be lost, O oh Lord God, that we might be found whole and new, pure and good, clothed in a righteousness that comes to us through the work of Jesus Christ and the ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit. We are sinners, Lord God, saved by grace through faith. We are not home yet, and until we are, Lord God, we will struggle in this mortal coil to serve you wholeheartedly and faithfully. And when we fail, O oh Lord God, may we remember, may we run to, may we find cover in psalms like Psalm 51 and cry out in hope and assurance, have mercy on me, O oh God, have mercy for you are a God who is gracious and merciful and in whose loving kindness we now 
trust our souls and our destiny. Speak to us now, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, from your Holy Word, that we might worship anew and aright the Holy Savior, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. This we ask in his precious name. Amen. I'd like to begin uh, this morning where I ended last week when uh, I preached on Psalm 51, and that's with a quote by Thomas Brooks, sort of in the middle of that quote. Remember that Brooks is writing about why does God uh, allow the records of the, the sins of our forefathers to be recorded, and Brooks writes this. He says, the reason God records the failures of his saints is to encourage others who have fallen by weakness and infirmity from fainting sinking and despairing under the burden of their sins. He also records them as landmarks to warn others that are standing to take heed lest they fall. It never entered the heart of God to record his children's sins that others might be encouraged to sin. He would have us stay close to Jesus and avoid all occasions and temptations that may give us reason to sin. The sins of others are landmarks to warn God's people about the rocks and snares as they sail through the ocean of this sinful and troublesome world. One of the things that makes the Bible unique among holy texts in all the world is that it is not ashamed to record or to document the failures, the flaws, and the sins of its heroes. Their failures... As we read through the scriptures, we see that their failures have one aim, their flaws have one purpose, and their sins one goal, and that is to point us to the one true and sinless hero, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 51 is a psalm that points us forward, as we, even as we look backward at the redemption that is made available to us through Christ. It is a case study of how the Holy Spirit helped David to get right with God after David was confronted with his sin. And his experience now is an example to us of how to confess our sins and to seek God's forgiveness. It's also an example, we'll see this later on at the end, it's also an example of looking at Nathan, the prophet, coming to David, of how we can be agents of absolution when someone has sinned. Because when you read through 2 Samuel and the encounter that David has there with Nathan, when Nathan the prophet encounters him, and David then, confronted with the reality, the sinfulness of his sin, confesses, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan's immediate response is not, well, you're on your own here, David. It's up to you to make things right. Or, it's too late for you, David. You're beyond hope. God has abandoned you. You'll have to make your way through life now on your own. Nathan says none of those things. Instead, what he does say is, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. When someone comes to us, or when we are in a position of having to confront someone about their sin, a sin perhaps against us or a sin against God that we are calling them to account for, and they acknowledge that they have sinned, our response to them should be, you know, brother, you know, sister, Christ has paid for that sin. You are forgiven. You won't die. There is absolution for you. That is essential to understanding the impetus behind this psalm. The only reason David can write Psalm 51 
and say and cry out with such confidence, be gracious to me, O God, is the presupposition, the knowledge, the assurance that God is going to be gracious to him. This is not a plea for grace that is based on a what if, but it is a plea for grace and a plea for mercy based on a what is, on how God has revealed himself throughout Israel's history and throughout biblical history as a God of grace, mercy, and loving kindness that no one, no matter how vile or foul or heinous the sin or the crime, is beyond the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Almighty God. And that how by confessing our sin, admitting we have sinned against God by breaking His rules, Confession allows us to make a fresh start with a clean heart. That's really the, one of the main ideas. Or you can bring out other ideas from Psalm 51. We're going to look at it from the standpoint of confession. Confession is really acknowledging before God that we have sinned against him by breaking his rules. And that we are asking him to help us make a fresh start with a clean heart. Now, last week we looked at the, the, the first three lessons that come out of Psalm 51, that confession is the proper response to having our eyes open to the sinfulness of sin, that it's grounded in God's promise to be gracious to sinners, and that it's asking, uh, then it's, uh, it's uh, acknowledging that sin originates in the human heart and only God can erase it. So this week we're going to look at the last three of these, which are confession is asking God to give us what we need to stay on the path of repentance recognizing the importance of contrition when we seek God's forgiveness, and then it's an act of faith that benefits the entire community. And I think you can also make the case that it also benefits the entire culture because there's a missional aspect at the end of Psalm 51 that we ought not miss either. So let's just unpack the, the first one. Confession is asking God to, to give us what we need so that we can stay on the path of repentance. In verses 10 to 12, this is probably the, the, one of the more famous texts within Psalm 51. Psalm, uh, verse 17 is also up there. But these three verses, uh, we, we sang a song based on these th verses last week. David writes here, um, You created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So you have two positive requests, two negative requests, and then two positive requests. That David says he needs these things in order to keep following God and live a life of repentance, a life where he has turned away from uh, one way of living to a way of living that is going to be more in line and more in keeping with God's word. So David says, I need a clean heart, and I need a steadfast spirit. I need the constant presence of God and the help of God's Holy Spirit. And I need to experience the joy of God's salvation, and I need to experience God upholding me so that I can continue to obey Him with a willing and obedient spirit. Now, Unrepentance, you understand, is more than just changing your mind about something. It's more than just changing your mind about, well, this, this thought or this activity is wrong and I'm not going to do that. It also involves a physical act of no longer doing those things. So it's turning literally away from what you had been doing now to doing something completely 
in line with what God wants and says is right. So the first step in repentance is confessing that we have sinned, which David has done. And then this confession is followed by seeking God's forgiveness. In Psalm 51, David seeks to experience God's forgiveness both externally and internally. We read about the external means of this forgiveness in verse 7. David says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That choice of words, purge me with hyssop or cleanse me with hyssop, is deliberate on David's part. Because hyssop, the hyssop plant, has deep, deep connections in the history of Israel. In the book of Exodus, when God tells Moses before, on the night of Passover, he tells the Israelites, you need to kill a lamb, and then you need to dip a hyssop, a bunch of hyssop, into the blood of that lamb, and then you smear that blood on the doorframe of your house, so that as the angel of death passes by, well, the angel of the Lord passes, he sees the blood on the doorframes, and he will pass over that house, and he will not kill the firstborn in Israel. When Nathan approaches David in 2 Samuel and says, the Lord has put away your sin, that verb, put away, can also be translated, the Lord has passed by your sin. So David is remembering an event that is significant in the history and founding of the nation. God has passed by his sin. And so David is saying, the only way that I can be passed by is because something or someone else, their blood has paid the price for my sin. So purge me with hyssop because the only way I can experience externally what it means to be forgiven is if this hyssop is dipped in blood and then sprinkled on me. Hyssop also has relevance with regard to in the book of Numbers, it was used in the ceremony to cleanse a man from leprosy. In order to, once a person was cleansed from their leprosy or skin disease, a bird was killed. It's blood mixed with water. The hyssop dipped in the water, and it was sprinkled onto the man. The same ceremony was also used to cleanse a house that had been infected with mildew. So the idea here is there is this external cleansing that takes place. And David says, so ceremonially, I'm going to be clean. Externally, I'm going to be clean. But I need more than that. I need something else. Because my sin is more than an external thing. The sin that I have committed, says David, did not originate outside of me. The sin that I committed was not Bathsheba's fault. The sin that I committed is because my heart is inclined in that direction. That left to my own devices, left to my own decisions and choices, I will not choose for God. Instead, I will choose for me. I will choose what is best for me. I will choose what I think is right for me. I will choose what I think is good for me, what is holy. I will be my own God, and I will determine my own destiny. David says, I don't want that heart. This is why he prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Those two positive requests, we'll get back to them in just a minute. They're followed by the two negative requests in verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is equating in verse 11 God taking away his spirit with the total loss of God's grace. You withdraw your spirit from me? I really am on my own. I have no light. I have no direction. I have no map. I have no direction for my life. I am alone. And that terrifies David. There are some people in our culture who think that's just fine, living the way they want to live. That ultimately leads to more slavery, more enslavement, and ultimately death. And David is remembering here what happened to King Saul, his predecessor, when God withdrew his spirit from Saul. You read about that in 1 Samuel 16. This is how David actually is introduced to Saul because God removes his Holy Spirit and he torments Saul with the spirit sent by God and David is summoned to play the liar in order to soothe Saul's soul. And so David remembering, and eventually, you know, Saul tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. He tried to kill him. So David says, I don't want to go in that direction. I don't want to lose my mind because God has withdrawn his grace and his presence from me. I don't want to become blackened and darkened in heart, mind, and soul because God has turned his face from me. He fears that. So he says, cast me not away from your presence. And the two negative requests to verse 11 are followed by two more positive requests in verse 12. This is what we're, when we stand here, when someone stands in this pulpit on Sunday and leads us in confession of sin, we may not be saying these words, but this is what we're asking when we cry out and we say, God, I have sinned, please forgive me. So verse 12, the positive requests are, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You go through the process of confessing your sin. You go through the expression of fear. Don't cast me away. Don't take your spirit from me. Instead, give me once again the joy of your salvation. Let me know gladness in my heart in the hearing the words, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. There's no joy in David's heart because sin has destabilized his relationship. Sin has thrown him off balance, and the only way that David can regain his balance is if God helps him regain his balance by restoring to him the joy of his salvation, remembering what it's like to be able to worship God with a clean and pure heart, to walk into his presence. Husbands know this. Wives know this. When you make that decision or you make that purchase without telling the other that you've made that purchase, that you hadn't discussed, but you just went ahead and made it on your own, like I did when I ordered a $52 iPad from someplace in the Far East, and instead I got a cheap watch. And my wife said, what did you expect? $52 iPad. Especially when it's pro. Thank you, yeah. Did you notice that iPad was spelled E-Y-E? No, I just saw $52. But my $52 iPad may be an item of clothing or some other kind of thing. 
and you try to hide it. You're shamed by that. David says, I don't want to feel shame in your presence. I want to feel joy. I want to feel relief. I want to, I'm going to raise my hands, lift my eyes, and not feel any sense of guilt. So he prays, uphold me with a willing spirit, because truth, in truth, sin is a heart problem. And it's a problem that reaches as far back into the first book of the Bible in Genesis. That's why Adam and Eve sin. It's why in Genesis 6, 5, God, looking over the landscape of humanity in the days of Noah, says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And when you get to the New Testament, things don't improve all that much, because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus confirms that all sin originates in the heart. And Jesus is talking in Mark 7, he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, he says, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's an, almost an exhaustive list. All these evil things, says Jesus, come from within and they defile a person. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Now, when you talk about the heart, and you talk about the heart from the perspective of the Bible, it, it refers to the heart as sort of the control center of everything we do. It's, our, it's the decision-making body, if you will, of who we are. But, however, <laughs> if all sin originates in the heart, the one lesson God wants us to learn is, don't follow your heart, which is every, the core of every Disney movie ever made, right? Follow your heart. Right? Even, even the Lord of the Rings has to mess up that line. Like, is Frodo alive? You know, and Gandalf says, what does your heart tell you? Right? And Aragorn has that moment. He says, Frodo lives. Yo, yes, he does, but it, it's not in your heart. Don't follow your heart. Even a renewed heart is still not completely, fully renewed because we're still struggling to follow God perfectly. Yes, as the saying goes in our culture, the heart wants what the heart wants, but sometimes the heart wants a $52 iPad. Or the heart wants an illicit relationship. Or the heart wants to shift blame. Or the heart wants to conceal a sin that we are embarrassed and know it's wrong, but we don't want others to find about. Don't follow your heart. Follow the Word. Because through the Word, the Spirit speaks. And as the Spirit speaks, God reveals His will and His intent. David followed his heart, remember? And the consequences of that choice haunted him the rest of his life. And that brings us back to verse 10. The reason why David asked God for a clean heart is because without it, his confession, his repentance, and his obedience are just nothing more than him checking boxes on a to-do list of religious activities. Made my confession... I'm going to fulfill the law outwardly, 
and I'm going to try my best to keep the law from now on. Check all those boxes. But without a changed heart, outward obedience is good, but God wants more. He demands more. He wants obedience that is generated from a heart that is honest, clean, and true. A heart that is filled with a genuine love for him and his word. Just as sin, all sin originates in the heart, so does all repentance. But here is the difference. Whereas sin originates in the human heart, repentance, repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit in that heart. Who not only changes it, but he also helps us change the way that we live. David knows he cannot give God anything more than outward obedience unless and until God does something that David and no human being could ever do. Create a heart that is clean, that is honest, that is true. And sinless. Only God can create a heart like that. David prayed to receive, as an individual, what we read about in Ezekiel that God promises to give to anyone who puts their trust in him. I will sprinkle clean water on you, says God in Ezekiel 36, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Read Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. And you will not find one word in there about anything that you and I can do. But you will find in that repeatedly, I will, I will, I will, says the Lord. All of this that David asks for is something that God and God alone can do and must do if we are to follow him faithfully, honestly, truly, wholeheartedly with a clean heart. When we come to the New Testament, we understand that it, this is really what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We love that verse, particularly when it comes to conversion. Because Paul writes there, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the, the, old, the new has come, the old is gone. A new creation means that we have a new heart. And what comes with a new heart, says Paul? What comes with a new heart, says David? A clean conscience. A pure conscience. May I be so bold to say a sinless conscience. What hyssop dipped in blood and water in the, New in the Old Testament, did for cleansing one outwardly. When you come to the New Testament, the blood of Christ does inwardly to the heart and to the conscience. If the blood of goats and bulls, says the writer of Hebrews, which is one of the most Old Testament of the New Testament letters, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of sins, how much more, does he say, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, there's a whole lot in what 
the writer of Hebrews says there, we won't even get into the fact that there's a Trinitarian formula there. You've got the Son, you've got the Spirit, and you've got the Father, all there in a span of about 12 words. But more importantly, did you catch the part that the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works? That's what happens when we confess our sin, not only here gathered as the people of God every Sunday, but when you go through your, hopefully, your devotions on maybe a daily or at least a every other day basis, and you confess your sins before God, what you are asking God to do is to once again cleanse your conscience. And sometimes that's going to require more than just telling God, you have sinned, please forgive me. That means going to the person that you have offended and sinned against and says, my conscience will not let me rest simply with saying to God, I have forgiven you, but, but to go to this person Brother or sister, I have sinned against you, and I need to hear from you, you've forgiven me. Those are some of the sweetest words you can ever hear from another human being. I forgive you. If I have wronged my wife, if I have sinned against my wife, And I finally drag my soul to confront that and to acknowledge that before her. And she graciously says, I forgive you. I'm the happiest man on the face of the earth. Because the person that is most dear to me on this planet outside of the Lord Jesus Christ has allowed me back into relationship with her. A relationship that I have broken by my stupidity. And maybe you're in that situation as well. Confession is more than good for the soul. It's good for the body. It's good for the mind. It's good, period. And it takes humility. It takes a form of contrition. So that when we sin and we're tempted to believe that God will cast us away from his presence. Because one of the greatest weapons that the enemy has to use against us when we know we have sinned. It's a combination of guilt, shame, humiliation, embarrassment, self-hate. And he uses those tools to great effect to wheedle them into our mind and our heart and our soul. How dare you ask God for forgiveness and call yourself a Christian? How could you do such a thing? How could you sit there Sunday after Sunday and worship him or try to read your Bible and pray with such piety? You know, you know what you did, and God knows what you did as well. He's not going to love you. You hear those lies, and the, and the way you respond to them is the way David did. Have mercy on me, O God. He will not cast you away from his presence. He will not take your Holy Spirit from you. The very fact that you feel guilt and shame and remorse 
is an action of his Holy Spirit and the evidence of his presence. 1 John 3, 19-22, wonderful words whenever you're wrestling with guilt and shame and fear that God is going to cast you away. 1 John 3 starts off with this assurance that we can call God Father. We have this wonderful privilege to be known as his children. And then in the middle of that chapter, he says, By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Well, what are you asking for when you go before God in confession? Forgive me. Cleanse me. Renew me. Restore me. Unsin me. Simply by grace. Simply because he is loving, kind, and merciful. You want more assurance? Romans 8, 1 and 2. After Paul goes through this litany of things that he is not able to do, even though he wants to do them, and he finds himself not doing the good that he desires, but the very sin that he hates, he praises God at the end of Romans 7 that only Jesus Christ can rescue him from this dilemma. And then he begins Romans 8 by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit and life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to say, because Christ, in sending Christ, God did what the law could never do, which is give us life and life eternal, which is give us the full assurance of our sins being forgiven. That there is a fountain drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and those who plunge themselves beneath that flood cleanse all their guilty stains. That's what confession does. It plunges us anew into the, the fountain filled with the blood of Christ that washes us clean and cleanses us from a, a conscience of shame and guilt and embarrassment. Confession is asking God to give us what we need to stay on the path of repentance, a clean heart and a new spirit. A, the constant presence of God and the constant help of His Holy Spirit to overcome sin, the joy of God's salvation, and for the fact that God will uphold us with a willing and obedient spirit. And then confession, secondly, it recognizes the importance of contrition when we seek God's forgiveness. Contrition is just another way of saying remorse, regret, sorrow, shame, brokenness. I read a story uh, recently about a six-year-old boy who attended uh, an Ash Wednesday service with his family. And at uh, this particular church, during this Ash Wednesday service, what they asked to do, one part during the service, they had the, you know, the, the altar was set up, and they had a wooden cross um, uh, set up next to the altar. And everyone in the congregation was asked at one point during the service to, they had, each had a piece of paper, and they were, to, they were asked to sort of write, on this piece of paper, the, the sins that they had committed and the sins that they were asking forgiveness for, 
and then, uh, you know, the little boy's parents, he was six years old, they kind of explained to him, they wanted him to participate in this exercise, and so they told him what was going on, and the little boy, as much as the six-year-old could understand it, says, okay, I, I get the concept, I'm going to write down, I've done something bad, and I'm going to put it on this piece of paper. So the parents did that, they neatly folded it up, and uh, they walked up to the altar and pinned it on the cross. The other thing, too, is when the parents... And everyone else in the congregation, when they wrote down their sins, they didn't sign their name to the paper. They just wrote it down, folded it up, and put it across. But the little boy, being six, right, writes out in very clear, large block letters, you know, his sin. And then in very large, clear block letters, he signed his name. And then he walked very, very confidently up to the cross, and he, he pinned it to the cross. He didn't fold up the paper. There was his name. There was his sin. And when he got back to his, his pew, his parents said, why, why didn't you fold up? Why did you write your name? Why didn't you fold it up? And the boy said, my, the confession was, dear God, I lie. And he said, I wrote my name on the paper because I want everyone to see it. Because if they know it was me, then they can help me. That's contrition. To have sorrow and remorse, not simply for the fact that you have sin, but you're out asking for help in not committing that sin again. Because repentance without contrition is like not signing your name to your confession. Repentance without contrition says, God, I've sinned, please forgive me. Repentance with contrition says, God, I've sinned, please forgive me, and help me not to sin. As parents, we saw this a lot when our kids would fight. Right? Maybe uh, your children, I know ours aren't perfect, yours are. They don't ever do this. When they would fight, you know, or they would do something mean to one another, you sort of bring them together, you know, you say to you, Matthew, tell, tell Liz you're sorry, you know, sorry, Liz. You know, I forgive you. No eye contact, right? No connection at all. God, forgive me. I'm sorry. And then you walk away. For that moment, you feel terrible. But then once you're out of the presence of that moment, everything is fine. That's not contrition. Contrition is saying, I have sinned. Please help me not to sin again. David knows that offering sacrifices will fulfill the letter of the law. But there's no sacrifice he can offer for adultery. There's no sacrifice he can offer for murder. They're punishable, these sins are, by death. And he wants, David knows that God wants him to be more than just sorry for his sin. That if his confession and repentance don't produce a change in his behavior, his confession is little more than an anonymous admission of guilt. A folded piece of paper on which his name is not written. It's like publicizing your, your sin on the internet but not using your name because you want to remain anonymous. But David signs his name. We have the psalm. <laughs> we have the story. God knows his sin. So why hide it? God knows our sin. So who are we fooling? <laughs> We're still like Adam and Eve trying to cover up ourselves with fig leaves. And God's saying, are you kidding me? I see all things. I know all things. 
What have you done? And why are you hiding from me? Especially in light of the cross. So rather than go through the motions of offering a sacrifice, knowing full well there's no sacrifice he could offer, David confesses the sinfulness of his sin. And here's sort of the ironic thing, right? The man who's after God's own heart suddenly realizes he's broken God's heart. And more importantly, he's grieved God's spirit. And as a result, David's heart and David's spirit are broken. I had a friend uh, some years ago, we were talking about Psalm 51, and, and I was going through some, some ideas about it, you know, and I was, you know, really getting into the whole confession aspect of it, and, and I was a young pastor, still a young man, and my friend was some years, about 20 years older than I am, and uh, he kind of just laughed, and he said, you know, Michael, I, I get that, that's, that that's, that's good analysis, good exegesis. He said, but, he said, son, you haven't lived long enough and you haven't sinned big enough to have an opinion about that just yet. But when you have, and when you do, then you run to Psalm 51. Because let's be honest, I'll be honest with you, by God's grace, I have not committed adultery with my wife. And maybe you haven't either. Maybe you haven't committed a sin that's worthy of death. So it's hard to relate, ideally, to what David is getting at here. We've sinned against God. We, maybe we've sinned against someone else. But if we haven't sinned as bigly as David has, it's hard for this psalm to really impact us. Unless, of course, we understand that any sin committed against God or a brother or sister in Christ or even a non-believer is still an offense to God. And still is worthy of death. Otherwise, the cross is unnecessary. So we may not, you may not at this point have lived long enough or sinned big enough, but one day you will. We all will. That's why Psalm 51 is in the Bible. That's why David's sin is in the Bible. Because when that day comes, we will all need to know that there is a God bigger than our sin. There is a God who is greater than our hearts. There is a grace greater than all our sin. What sacrifice can we offer to mend God's broken heart? What offering can we give that can comfort His Holy Spirit? It's been said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. How do you mend a broken heart of the divine? How do you mend and a spirit that's been grieved? Psalms, uh, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. I shared with you last week the story of, of my son coming out to the car after I had, had an argument with Jill and I used language I ought not have used. And I remember telling you how you know, Matthew repeated to me just the things that he had heard. He didn't say the words. He just said the words. He heard the words I said. That, that's about as close as I have 
could come to experiencing this kind of contrition. It's like, oh, what have I done? What have I done? One, one scholar summarizes the depth of David's contrition this way, his remorse. He says, when we have sinned and the hammer of God's law has crushed our heart in true repentance and we genuinely come before God with a broken and contrite heart, then we are ready for God's further work upon our heart, which results in the full restoration that only grace can accomplish. To say God will not despise such sacrifices is a mild understatement. So humbled and chastised is David that he is now bringing to God his own sacrifice of a broken heart. God's not going to turn away that kind of offering, that kind of confession. When we have true contrition, a true recognition of how deadly is our sin to our relationship with God, it doesn't sever the cord entirely, you understand, but it damages it enough that it causes us to hide from his face when there's no way to hide from his face. So just confess your sin, receive forgiveness, and move forward with the help of the Spirit not to do it again. Because lastly, confession is an act of faith that benefits the whole community. David, getting back to verses 13 now and 18 and 19, David says, after all of this, if God restores him, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So here David is acknowledging the fact that having tasted the, the power of God's grace and mercy, you just can't keep that to yourself. This is So forgiveness, if you will, is it may be an experience that we have in private. It may be in the secrecy of our own heart. But at some point, it has to bleed out into public. Let me tell you of the goodness of God. Let me tell you about how forgiving and gracious and merciful is this God that he gave his only son, not only that all should have life through him, but to cleanse us from the depth and depravity of our own wayward soul. So David says, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. And who better to teach them than one who is himself a forgiven transgressor? I mentioned last week that some of the most honest people that I have met, and some of them I've met who have attended churches that I've been privileged to serve, have gone through Alcoholics Anonymous. And they make no bones about the fact of how deadly that disease and that sin is, not only to them, but to their families. Marriages have been lost. Relationships have been broken. And so when they begin to talk about the repair that God does by his grace, they are transgressors like David who are saying, I have lived long enough, and I have sinned big enough, and I have seen God's grace cover that sin. They begin to talk about how God repairs, how God restores, how God renews, how God makes right how they have had to humble themselves and go to family members and friends and say, I lied to you and I hurt you and I offended you and I was doing things driven by a sin that affected all of our relationships. That act is what David is calling us to do whenever we confess. The humbled king is now proud to call himself a teacher. 
and his goal is the conversion of sinners. And there is a missional aspect to this, isn't it? Right? David now becomes a missionary for the grace of God, testifying to the power of restorative mercy. When he writes, as he does in verse 18, about restoring Jerusalem and all of that, some scholars think that these verses are a later addition, maybe written after David lived. But I, I think David wrote these because David acknowledges the fact that he is the king. And as the king, he represents the nation. And as goes the king, so goes the nation. Read Chronicles. Read Kings. And you'll see that. Good king, things go well. Bad kings, things go badly. Very badly. But it's not just kings. It's husbands. It's fathers. It's wives. It's mothers. It's bosses, it's managers, it's owners. A good husband, a good wife is essential to a strong family. A man who honors his wife and a wife who honors her husband, a mother who loves her children and disciplines them in the ways of Christ and a father who does the same, who is involved in the lives of his children, Sets the tone for the home. Becomes an example of what it means to live repentantly contri with contrition after one sins, but then joyfully as well. Showing the way in terms of what it means to follow Christ and to live with that forgiveness and to know that indeed the Lord has put away our sin. I said I was going to return to Nathan's example of what to do when someone comes. And I, I just saw this uh, the other day, and it, it made an impact on me. I watched a, a fellow. I follow a fellow online. Actually, remember the book I, I showed you, Limping with God, by Chad Bird? Well, Chad Bird has an Instagram page, and he has these little short devotionals. And he was talking about, in Matthew 27, talked about how Judas Iscariot was betrayed. And he explained that, yes, Judas certainly did betray Jesus, and that was wrong. But then Judas himself was betrayed by the chief priests and the elders. Because in Matthew 27, at the beginning of that chapter, when Judas, Matthew writes, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And what is the response of these chief priests and elders? <laughs> What's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Compare that to 2 Samuel 12, 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. There is a sense in which when someone bears their heart, whether in, in confessing a sin against you or a sin against someone else, the response should be, the Lord has put away your sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. You will not die. Let's work at reconciliation, restoration, and repairing this relationship and build on that. Not, <laughs> what's that to me? really sucks to be you at this point. See to it yourself. 
You crushed that person. Because when someone confesses sin to you, what they're asking for, they're wanting you to, to step into that moment with them and to experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I love how Tim Keller summarized it. He says, the gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Confession comes to grips with that. That while we like to think of ourselves as holy and good and righteous, we are in Christ those things. We still sin. We are still flawed more than we ever dared to believe. But then someone pronounces a word of forgiveness and assurance. You confess your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness at that moment to experience the fact that we are loved and accepted more than we ever dared to hope. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that confession brings us into relationship with you, a relationship that we have broken, but it is the means by which you have given to us to repair that relationship and to restore it by the one who has restored it permanently by his blood. So, Father, we thank you for the flaws and the sins of our heroes because in acknowledging their flaws, they have opened the way for us to understand grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Help us, Lord God, to continue to follow you with hope, with faith, and with trust in your great loving kindness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.